Welcome to the BNP Room Podcast with your host, Brian. This week's episode, we're going to be talking about P is for personal growth, the concept of the trickster, and integrity. Somehow this episode is going to combine the concept of the trickster and integrity. I don't know how well it comes together, but you'll have to wait and find out and let me know in your feedback. Okay, let's get into it. Thanks again for joining me. Hope you enjoy the episode. One more thing I want you to be aware of when you listen to this episode. That is that this episode also has some disco biscuits in it. Not only a mention of Mark Brown's scene, which you'll hear, but at one point I talk about Pete Buttigieg, and I call him Little Betty Boop Pete, and I start singing a song which sounds like Little Betty Boop Baby Da Baba, which is a Disco Biscuit song, Little Betty Boop. But then there was an unintentional Disco Biscuit reference, which I didn't even realize until after I listened to this and had this episode put together. The Disco Biscuits, one of the things they are known for, and I believe they're the only band I know of that has done this, but there maybe is some other bands out there. But they've done these things called a palindrome set, which is they will begin a concert with, let's say, we'll just say, we'll call it song A, and then they'll go into song B, and then into song C. But song C, they'll begin at the end of song C, and then they'll go back to the beginning of song C, and then they'll go back to song B and finish with song A, thus making a palindrome. Well, this episode has a palindrome structure because I start off by talking about the trickster, it's kind of a weak palindrome, but I go the trickster, and then I go into integrity, 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 and then I close it off with the trickster. So it's not really a great palindrome, but it's there all the same, and I think that's kind of of note. And more than not, I just wanted to tell you how the Disco Biscuits have a really cool thing where they do palindromes. Anyway, I'm going to finish this off. Enjoy the episode, and thanks again for listening. Okay, I'm going to tell you just a little bit about the trickster from a Wikipedia entry. And this is an entry for the list of tricksters. So I'm going to give you some character examples. Uh, But I'll read the definition first. It says, The trickster is a clever, mischievous person or creature who achieves his or her ends through the use of trickery. A trickster may trick others simply for their amusement. They could be a physically weak character trying to survive in a dangerous world. Or they could even be a personification of the chaos that the world needs to function. Okay, now there are some examples here that I will read to you, some characters. And here are characteristics from a book. Uh, Six characteristics that every trickster has. Fundamentally ambiguous or anomalous. Number two, deceiver and trick player. Number three, shapeshifter or master of disguise. Number four, situation inverter. Number five, messenger and imitator of the go- imitator of the gods. Number six, sacred and lewd brucoulier. I'm not even sure what that word is. Brucoulier, it's from French. Ah, it's the construction or, or a creation of a work from a diverse range of things that happen to be available. Or a work constructed using mixed media. Okay, well, there you go. So, sacred and lewd peculiar. So, there are some here, are some examples from uh, literature and classics. Dionysius, Pan, or Pan, Jack from Jack and the Beanstalk, 
Japanese folklore, the kitsune, the fox. Foxes are often described as tricksters. Um, they don't really care about right or wrong. Odysseus, um, he came up with the idea for the Trojan horse. And a lot of times characters will embody the trickster to get out of situations like, okay, uh, Prometheus stole fire on behalf of mankind by tricking Zeus. Okay, and in movies and TV, you got Bart Simpson, Bugs Bunny, uh, Jack Sparrow from the Pirates of the Caribbean, the Joker, of course, the Joker, and that, that's the dark side of the trickster. Um, uh, da -da -da -da, the Pink Panther, Rumpelstiltskin, and I'll finish with this one, Tyrion Lannister, astute observer, manipulator of phenomenon, and sexually prodigious. Both quintessential traits of the trickster archetype. Okay, so those are some tricksters. Um, in my article that I'm going to be referencing, uh, I'm talking more about the trickster in the sense of using comedy to elaborate or express one's darker side and that's another way the trickster can work and that should cover it so let's go into the rest of the episode okay and the bit that you're going to hear about the trickster i reference an anecdote from the grateful dead um, i fully explain this in my blog post which is really if you really want to get the full lowdown on why i wanted to talk about the trickster read the blog post because I'm way too disjointed today um, to do this properly on the podcast. Um, but to set up this anecdote, this is from a concert, November 1st, 1979, a uh, few days before the Iran hostage crisis and when world tensions were on the rise. So I'll just read to you uh, what I wrote. Okay. So there they were, this band of merry men from San Francisco known as the Grateful Dead. Having just finished serenading their faithful with two playful songs to open their first set, tuning up their instruments in that ever so slow way that became one of their unfortunate staples, when rhythm guitarist and singer Bob Weir steps up to the mic to deliver this doozy of a joke. I have it from a usually reliable source. Just told me that Russia just bombed Staten Island, and so if you live there, don't bother to go home tonight. And the crowd, you hear a few cheers, and then they start up, up more doodling, and a minute later they start playing another song. And it got me to thinking, um, what if a band made that kind of joke today? So I was imagining that my favorite band, the Disco Biscuits, what if they were to do that sort of joke, such as at their most recent show on my birthday, January 4th, 2020 in Chicago, what if uh, Mark Brownstein, the bass player who does a lot of their talking, had gone up to the stage and said, ah, if any of you live in Milwaukee, I've got news from a usually reliable source that the Iranians have just detonated a dirty bomb on your berg, so don't bother going back. And I just wonder, like, would people laugh about that, or would they be, like, upset? Would they be hurt? <laughs> Probably the, the crowd, there'd be some chuckles, because, you know, Brownie's he's among his friends, but... The point is about the <clears throat> one of the best ways, as I wrote here, one of the best ways to deal with some of the shocking realities of the world is to defuse it with gallows humor, to let our inner shadow channel through the trickster so we can all laugh, even if a bit nervously. And that's kind of the point of the trickster and what I was getting at, because uh, 
You know, there's a lot of stress in our world right now, and it's interesting because comedians are getting in trouble for, break, you know, crossing the line and making jokes. And it seems to me we need humor more than ever. Um, I'm really in an unhumorous mood today and trying to get that, but it's pretty hard. So I'm going to leave it at that. You can listen to the rest of the episode. Um, like I said, this is not my best work, folks, but bear with me. I'm just getting it out there. So that's what it is. And, uh, yeah, go read the blog post because I think it's a lot more focused. And um, there you go. I'll post it in the links. And enjoy the rest of the episode. This is about the trickster from uh, this Young in Life podcast. This quote is a young quote about the trickster. So here we go. I have, a, I have a quote here from Jung that I'll drop in here because I think it's right, relevant to the story you just told. Jung says, the so-called civilized man has forgotten the trickster. He remembers him only figuratively and metaphorically when, irritated by his own ineptitude, he speaks of fate playing tricks on him or of things being bewitched. He never suspects that his own hidden and apparently harmless shadow has qualities whose dangerousness exceeds his wildest dreams. Okay, that's great. And the reason it's great is because, so this morning when I heard that Bob Weir anecdote, and it immediately triggered this intuitive, like, you need to write about the trickster. And I, like, just the whole, like, all these things came through, the Joe Rogan thing with Bernie, all this stuff came through, like, and the trickster's been on my mind a lot in the last couple, several years, um, with Donald Trump being president. Trump card, and it's connected to the shadow. And I wrote about how it was in my, my post that I've kind of written up, so it's connected to the shadow. I hope you... So it is interesting when I heard that because I haven't listened to this podcast yet. Never, I haven't read much Young. I have a his book that I read occasionally, but I've read and listened to people who talk in Jungian terms. But I still feel like a lot of this knowledge I have about it is more intuitive. Which makes sense because Young's a very intuitive person. I have, the, I was just gonna say, I just this theory just popped in my head. That intuition, I mean, it's a skill set. It's like a way of knowing. It's like a way of perceiving. But maybe some of the things we're intuitive about connect to our past lives. So maybe I studied this stuff before. I don't know. Or I, it's probably more like I think often we confuse past lives with just what's going on in the collective. Like collective consciousness, like we're tapped into all that. We're all connected to each other and to our thoughts. So, if you're into, if you're using intuition, you're going to use, you know, the collective consciousness, basically. So, could just be that. Doesn't matter. All I know is that I intuitively tied the two together. Like the trickster is a part of. It's an archetype, and often. It has this connection with the shadow, like if you don't, like, because here's how I, I, I'm connecting it. Just going backwards. Just stop for a sec. Ah, sorry, the car is engine stinky. Um, in my own kind of podcasting and my work and just how I think, a lot of times something will make me laugh. That's really, you know, it's. It's a dark topic, you know, or it's inappropriate or whatever. 
someone farts loud in a serious point and everybody laughs. Why? Because it's inappropriate. But that's sort of trickster, trickster energy um, playing with things. Now that doesn't really have that much to do with the shadow. Although I guess it could because if a situation is like way too serious for its own good, people are putting too much energy into it that not being natural, so that could be in shadow. Anyway, it's not, it's, that's not the greatest example of shadow, but it's more what I'm talking more about is in our culture right now, in the culture wars, you've got people, smart people, people who are progressive and liberal, getting upset with comedians for being fucking funny, you know, like, and it's like, they're expressing the shadow. And so when I see people who are getting upset about people being light, to me, what I see there is someone who's uncomfortable with that shadow being exposed for whatever reason, you know? And to me, that's where shadow work comes in. And one thing that you can use, one thing that you can do to integrate your shadow is allow it to be an inappropriate joker. Instead of judging yourself, why did I think that? My head's a little foggy today, though. But I just said something really good there. I think some stuff. So whatever I just said about 10 minutes ago before I got, or not 10 minutes, 15 seconds ago before that car or on that bridge, whatever I said, that's key. It's key to this whole thing. That's kind of like the key insight. Like allowing your shadow access to yourself and befriending it and not hating it and then when you do that you won't project it onto the world and hate others who you've projected it onto you know like hillary clinton i hate to go back to her but she's such a great case study in this i mean trump is too but hillary just because i'm we're in the middle of the 2020 democratic primaries and it's like this repeat of that time where there's a lot of projection of dishonesty, aggressiveness, all this projection from the centrists onto those of us who are wanting the party to go in a new direction because we've seen their programs and they don't work. They don't like, when I say they don't work, I mean what they say they're gonna do, they don't do. And so that's, they don't have integrity, okay? That's what integrity means. Like, if I tell you, I'll be there at five, I'll be there on time, but every day I'm not on time, I lack integrity. That's what it means. That's why it's connected to truth and honesty. It's being true to your word. Now, of course you forgive. There are times where, hey, I'll be there at five, something happens, even if you have a, mistake that was all your fault like you overslept or whatever of course you can forgive glitches to the pattern but if there's a pattern of lack of integrity then you have to say after all this person's not to be believed right so that's what we're doing and what the Corporatists, centrists, oligarchs, whatever you want to call them. The traditional Democratic Party, the the Clinton wing, the Obama wing. And Obama, unfortunately, got caught up in that wing. You know? Because he's now out there 
I'll do whatever I can to, to stop Bernie Sanders, because I'm Barack Obama. I'm a serious man, seriously wealthy man. <laughs> and that should tell you, folks. Now again, now Bernie Sanders is not seriously wealthy, okay? He wrote a couple books and made some good money off of it. But I still think if you look at his net worth compared to most of the people, senators, it's not even close. Now, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that's true. You probably find that sat somewhere. Probably should look that up. Point is, it's not that a person can't be wealthy, but when Apollo, like how did Bernie get wealthy? He got wealthy by writing books about what he's trying to propose to do to help the American people, okay? And you can, you can, we can have a discussion on whether it will help or not. That's fine. But that's how he made, you know, the money he has. And again, it's nothing near like the money of like a Bloomberg, you know, some of these other people, or Trump, you know. Well, Trump, we don't even know. Trump could be all smoke and mirrors. Who knows of him? My taxes are my own business. Well, then don't fucking be president, dude. <laughs> like, sorry. Like, if you want to be, it's my own business, then don't run for the highest public office in the fucking world. <laughs> you know? Talk about lack of integrity. And then the Republicans defend him, like, yeah, that's right, man. It's like, transparency for all of you people out there, but for us, no, no, no. Privacy. It matters. Okay, that's bullshit. It's another topic, but it is connected to integrity. Because again, it's saying like, this matters to me, but only if it's in, you know, this this principle matters to how we should live, but it's how you should live, not how I should live. You know, hypocrisy, integrity. But I don't accuse, I don't think Bernie can be accused of hypocrisy just because he wrote a couple books about his. You know, if you read his book, it's all. I haven't finished. I should just keep reading his book. That's what I had to do, a comparison of Bernie's book to Pete Booty Boop's book. Pete Betty Boop's book. <laughs> Little Betty Peep is going to the boba. <laughs> Little Petey Boop is booby the boba. That's what I had to do. Since my biggest blog post of all time is comparing Forrest Gump the movie to Forrest Gump the book. <laughs> anyway, point is, Barack and Hillary and these people made a lot of their money just giving speeches to rich people. And I'm sorry, like, I think I can give a pretty good speech. Like, this isn't me giving a speech, by the way. This is just me, like, speaking my thoughts out loud as I ride my bike home. <laughs> but I'm capable of giving a very good speech. At least I was told so by the people that heard it last summer. Anyway, the point is, yeah, I don't care if you drink the fucking Gettysburg Address. I don't think it should be paid, like, what was it Hillary made for half an hour and a half, like $150,000? I mean, it's just on the face of it, it's fucking ridiculous. It's corruption. Okay, I went on for a bit in that recording that you've been listening to. And a lot of it I had to cut out, mostly because the wind was coming in the way of being able to really make out what I was saying. Uh, I have to start realizing when I'm riding my bike that if I'm moving, it's going to sound like there's more wind. If I just stop, it's better. Uh, so I'll try to keep that in mind in the future. Uh, but the part I did keep that I want to share with you is my first foray into talking about 
Dun dun dun, drum roll please. Astrology. Oh no, who pays attention to astrology? Well, I do. And you're probably thinking you know what I'm talking about, and you're probably just, maybe you're even like saying, rolling your eyes and going, what the hell, astrology, that's nonsense. Well, that's because you only know it probably from newspapers and from the pop culture, which is nonsense. However, there's a lot more to it than what you know. So I'm going to read to you from a book called The Night Speaks, How Astrology Works by Stephen Forrest. And the reason I'm doing this right now is because it ties into integrity, which is the second theme of this episode, the trickster and integrity. And the trickster will tell you not to pay attention to astrology, but I'm telling you, pay attention. Anyway, let's listen to this. And uh, this is from his book. And this is a book I, I found via... The astrologer that I really got into last summer, he has a YouTube series. Once a week, he releases his little report called the Paley Report, Astrology for the Soul. I'll try to put the link in if I remember. Anyway, this guy that I'm reading from is somebody he recommended on one of his Paley Reports. And then I found this book and I thought, well, that's the big question I have is how does astrology work? And this book is an attempt to somewhat answer that. It's still somewhat mysterious, but let me read here. Okay. The 12 astrological signs, as they are proffered by the idiot press, are a mishmash of pop psychological insights spiced with fatalistic prognostications about one's prospects in love and finance. We are represented as automatons, driven to act out a variety of embarrassing personality traits until our batteries go flat. Such a perspective flies in the face of the reality of human experience. We change. Life changes us. Are you the same person you were 10 years ago? No, I'm not. Who could be? Regardless of our attitudes and philosophies, one observation is sure. Life, like the sea, crashes against our stone shores and gradually alters their outlines. Any system that describes a human personality as a fixed entity, cradle to grave, is transparently erroneous. The signs, far from being immutable behavioral circuit boards stuck inside our heads at birth, actually mark the contours of twelve journeys. In each, a goal is defined. In each, strategies are recommended and tools are offered. And in each, warnings are given. Serious warnings. Life is full of pitfalls. Walk through any shopping mall with the word zombie in your head. See who lights up. That's what I mean by pitfalls. Few of us choose emptiness and misery. Many of us find them anyway. To live well and consciously calls for more than good intentions and a positive attitude, although they help. To live well and consciously calls for something far more elusive, self-knowledge. Okay, he goes on a little bit in that direction, uh, but then he mentions, I'm going ahead and skipping a little forward, all 12 signs are there in each one of us, but generally two or three of them dominate, the sun sign, the moon sign, and the sign that was rising when we were born. Okay, so my sun and moon are both in Capricorn, and my rising is Cancer. So I'm going to read to you a little bit about Capricorn, and you'll understand why integrity matters. So next, he says, each sign represents a transcendent virtue. In the following sections, I call that virtue the developmental aim. Each sign embraces a path we can travel toward the full realization of that quality. That is the evolutionary strategy. Each sign supplies tools for the job. Those are the resources. These tools can be misapplied, producing a pointless, twisted expression of the ideal. That's the shadow. Then there's the burden of each sign. That is not another word for shadow, nor does it imply anything wrong. 
Instead, the burden represents a certain perception, typically painful, which that sign alone must bear for the world. It's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Okay, let's flash forward to the Capricorn part. Okay, so we have Capricorn, and it says, Developmental aim, integrity, evolutionary strategy, to define basic values and live up to them, to accomplish great works, to let your intentions rather than your appetites shape your life. Resources, self-discipline, common sense, logic, patience, persistence, self-sufficiency, shadow, emotional constriction, workaholism, sorrow, loneliness, and time-serving. And last, burden, to see the illogic and inefficiency with which we blind and perplex ourselves. Okay, so that's, uh, my chart is very heavily Capricorn, and the other sign that's very heavy is Sagittarius. Uh, but that's really what I wanted to share with you, is that integrity, um, it's been kind of, a lot of reason I had trouble finding work in the world is because I have a strong sense of integrity, and I don't want to work for bullshit. I don't feel like I'm here to do, like, life is too important to me to be stuck doing just some, a job for for money, just to pay the bills, you know? Like, I, what I'm doing with my life, I want it to matter. I want it to have some value. I want it to be creating meaning and be useful for other people. So um, I will talk a little bit now about Michael Bloomberg because what I see there is a campaign that has no integrity. Apparently he's going out and just buying off all these campaign advisors and there's causing trouble for campaigns all around the country for local and state campaigns to find people to do the work because Bloomberg's buying them up for himself. And that doesn't say very speak very well of political workers. However, uh, to defend them a little bit, in the system we have right now where you money is just so important and the cost of living is so high, if a candidate is offering way more than another person, people have their bills to pay or whatever, then I understand that, you know. But on the other hand, I feel like it would be a better world if more of us could just say, screw that, I'm not going to work for that. I'm not going to get that extra money. The money's not what matters. What matters is I want to work for somebody who I believe in. I mean, that to me, if it's a little hard for me to understand people who go into politics just for it as a career and money. I, mean, I would hope people who are working for campaigns are doing it because they believe in the person they're working for, not just because they paid them a lot of money. Uh, it doesn't speak very well for the integrity of the American people if that's what people go into politics for, you know? I'm sorry, but it just doesn't. Okay, I'm going to cut this there. That's probably good enough. Um, I'll have more to say about Michael Bloomberg. I think he's going to be around for a bit, unfortunately. Um, but I'll cut it there. So that's why integrity matters to me. Sorry, but I got to continue because... <laughs> Uh, here, I'm going to play it. Just listen to this, and then I'll comment. Rational cognitive capacity. Of the trickster. When Hermes is born, uh, that's the first thing he does. He steals his older brother's cattle, and then he lies about it. He says, I didn't do it. 
Yeah, I'm just a day-old baby. How could I do it? I don't even know what cattle are. So there is also an intentional uh, trickster capacity as well as the parapraxies and the, the times when we just blurt out the exact opposite of what we intended to say. <laughs> now, Hermes is the name for Mercury. The Roman god is Mercury, and the Greek god is Hermes. I think I have that right. I was just looking. Make sure I have that right. Mercury is Roman. Greek is Hermes, okay? So, interesting. Because Mercury, here, it's, I'll just read you the quick little thing that came up when I typed in Hermes Mercury. God of shopkeepers and merchants, travelers and transporters of goods, and thieves and tricksters. He is commonly identified with the Greek Hermes, the fleet-footed messenger of the gods. Now, here's what gets cool. My book, The Teacher and the Tree Man, which you're going to hear soon. I'm just going to say it. Maybe I should save this part, but in my book. Hmm. Wow. This could be a part two to the trickster. Thinking about how to do this, folks. Am I talking to myself? Am I talking to you? If I'm talking to you, when do I release this? Because it's not its not really a spoiler. I'll just say it. Fuck it. You're here in the book. You've already, if you, uh, now. Yeah, I can't go too far into that, though. I'll just say this. There is a company named Mercury Media in the book. Mercury Media. That might give you a little clue. And let's get back to the topic of the day. Let's talk. <laughs> what was the Hillary thing? So here's a great one. Ah, Hillary Clinton. I got her on the mind. <laughs> I did this funny little thing. Oh, never mind. Never mind. Never mind. That's that's going down to my comedic part. I'm going to just have to start putting these comedy episodes on my uh, Patreon and make people pay for them. Because uh, I can't have them out in the world. Not, not, without, get, not without selling my soul. Um... <laughs> God, that was, I can't remember the bit I had, but it was about Hillary and Bill and no more blowjobs for you or something. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Woo! <laughs> Somebody's probably already done that bit. Probably beat me to the bit. Beat me to the point. I'm biking here. I'm going now. It's really nice out today. I love winter in Jaguma so much. You guys don't understand. Like... It's like the mid, it's in the you know, upper 40s, but there's no wind and the sun is out and I'm nice and cozy, but I'm, I'm not hot, but the air feels cool. Oh, I just love it. I love it so much. Oh boy. I'm going to get down to the road here, so I got to stop here in a minute. Anyway, Mercury, 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 Mercury Media, Messenger of the Gods. Mercury is connected to tricksters and the media, folks, can be used. It's the mental capacity and it can be used to trick ya, trick ya. Trick you and it licks ya, six ya, six its Doberman on ya, like Kanye, Wayne Kone, <laughs> Gary Coon, I'm a baboon, and there's the moon. Okay, I'm gonna stop this. I'm going down the hill into the road here. I'm gonna die. I ain't gonna die biking today. Even if there's a cat that's in my way, that cat had no tail. I think it was a crow. A crow. There's a raven. <laughs> look at that. See, there's synchronicity, folks. If you really look for the symbols, there they are. It's like sitting on the... Right as I, fly, I go by, it's on this fence, and it, like, flies off. It's like... 
And then all of a sudden I think to myself, the connection's made to Game of Thrones, a raven from King's Landing, and that kicks off that whole story of tricksters and tales. Oh, man. <laughs> Ned Stark should have fucking just said, bring it out here and chopped its head off, and then the story's over. <laughs> we wouldn't have wasted eight years. <laughs> Woo! That's how Game of Thrones actually was originally conceived by George Martin and his publicist said, well, there's not much of a story here. George is like, I just don't want to waste my life on this. <laughs> uh, that's classic. <laughs> okay, there's some good comedy for you. The trickster, everybody. The trickster. The trickster is a good, good, fun friend. But he can be a real son of a bitch. Bitchy tricksy. All right, that's enough. Chapter 15, Meetings of Minds. Rainier View Principal Max Weinberg sat behind the oval table in the teacher's meeting room and said, Okay, thank you all for coming. We'll hear from Mr. Bob Schmidt first. Lucas, Danielson, and Wendy sat together and looked at a giant of a man in a gray business suit and with politician-perfect comb-brown hair sitting at the end of the table. Thank you, Principal Weinberg, he said. Lucas sat on the edge of his seat, intent on finding holes in Schmidt's thinking. He was next, and he wanted to be loaded with ammunition that could blast through Schmidt's puny arguments. As you know, our son Bob Jr. was given a drug by one of Rainierview's students, Schmidt said. We are practicing Mormons, and drug use is strictly forbidden. Drug use is a sin. Our son was tempted by Chris Lee to act sinfully. There is no excuse for this kind of behavior, and, as you know, the law backs me on this. According to the school's own codes, students are not allowed to carry drugs. They are to turn them into the nurse's office. Chris Lee clearly violated this rule. That's the first strike against him. But even worse, he then spat in the face of school policy by offering those drugs on the playground. As a result, our son has committed a sin. I pray that you are people of good conscience with respect for the law, for it is your duty to right this wrong. To our Heavenly Father, we ask for forgiveness. To the school, we ask for justice. Thank you. Damn, Lucas thought. He wasn't as much of a raving extremist as I thought he'd be. Paul Lucas, Weinberg called. Lucas stood. Thank you for allowing me to speak on Chris Lee's behalf, he said, stopping to glance around the room since his parents couldn't be here for him. Lucas paused and looked over at Danielson, who seemed displeased. What had he said? Never mind, time to put it all out there. Chris Lee is a victim of an irrational law, which ties reason in knots and leaves us worse off than before we had the law. What did Chris Lee do wrong? He was reacting out of compassion for Bob Schmidt, merely trying to help him overcome a nasty headache. And so we then call him a drug pusher, as though he were passing out crack? He gave Schmidt an over-the-counter pill, which is commonly accepted in our culture, and which no one would suggest is a drug of abuse. There are clear distinctions between various medications and drugs of abuse, and drug laws recognize this. Why should our schools ignore such distinctions? Just because of a poorly crafted law by Washington bureaucrats? Ultimately, Chris Lee is a great student, always works hard, is well-liked by his peers, was never in trouble before, and to punish him for exercising compassion, 
something the world needs more of, judging by the horrific events of this week, well, to do that is sheer folly. Lucas thought about stopping here, but the energy of public speaking had infected him, and he bowled forward, unable to resist responding to Mr. Schmidt's religious impulses. Now, there is one more thing I wish to address, and that is this notion of Lee's actions being a sin. That is completely ludicrous, Lucas said, and glanced over at Schmidt Sr., who was glaring back at him. Jesus preached about compassion. In fact, it was one of his main teachings. But that's beside the point. What I'm getting at here is that we have to look at intent and not be blinded by unbending rules. Chris Lee intended to help a classmate. That is certainly not the behavior of a sinner, and it certainly doesn't warrant him being thrown out. If anything, the kid deserves an award. Schmidt's glare was a spotlight of disgust. Lucas wanted to smile at the man, to break through his veneer, but doubted it would do much good. "'Your time is up, Mr. Lucas,' said Weinberg in an irritated tone. "'Thank you.' Lucas smiled at Weinberg, who didn't smile back, and at Schmidt, who only intensified his glare, and said, "'Thank you.' He looked at Danielson, who did not make eye contact with him, and Wendy, who did, but he wished she hadn't. She looked like she wanted to drill two holes into his soul with those pretty eyes of hers. Meanwhile, the room was uncomfortably silent, and it disturbed Lucas. It felt like the sort of silence that falls after someone has committed a cultural no-no. Had it been his attack of Schmidt's so-called religious beliefs? Probably. But he couldn't just let it go. Not when it had seemed so blatantly inaccurate. Lucas sat through Wendy's speech and realized that he'd made a strategic error by bringing up religion. His more on-point defensively would be forgotten. Still, he didn't regret it because speaking the truth was important to him. He only hoped that by doing so, the next time someone brought it up, it would be less of a taboo. History worked that way, Lucas felt. As taboo topics became more acceptable, denial was slowly but surely defeated. It was Danielson's turn to speak. He began, Much of what I want to say Mr. Lucas has covered, so I'll keep it as short as I can. Yes, Chris Lee broke school policy. Yes, he should be punished. Lucas couldn't believe this. What the hell is he doing? He knows he is supposed to turn all medication into the nurse. And he should have. Yet, I want the board to think about this. I suggest that what he did was much like if an adult were to get a speeding ticket because they were hurrying a sick child to a doctor. If a policeman stops the speeder, he may issue a ticket, but he won't arrest the person and take them to jail. Well, by suspending Mr. Lee, that is what we'd be doing. I suggest we give him something more like a ticket, such as a drug awareness course and after-school detention for a few days, where he will write a paper reflecting on the mistake he made. Thank you. Lucas watched Schmidt glaring at Danielson as the veteran teacher finished. Schmidt's eyes, a lust for vengeance, a desire to see his viewpoint prevail and justice served. Lucas couldn't stand the man. How he tried to impose his viewpoint on everyone, how he equated an over-the-counter painkiller that was as common in American society as minivans with truly dangerous drugs like crack or heroin, how he couldn't draw these obvious distinctions. He made Lucas sick. But what made Lucas even sicker was the fact that no matter how eloquent or persuasive the words they had used to defend Chris Lee were, the irrational Schmidt was going to see his version of justice prevail. Lucas sat in his car at the corner of Maine and Rainier. 
doing his best to ignore the man with a placard and bullhorn who was preaching about the end of the world just on the other side of his window. Often, Lucas lamented how car culture kept everybody separate in one's own little world, thus increasing a sense of alienation. However, there were times like this when he was grateful for his private realm. The man's placard read, They are coming! Prepare! And he was ranting about a variety of topics, from UFOs to conspiracies involving oil tycoons, rich Arabs, and elitist Jews controlling the media. Lucas always pitied people like this, not because of their viewpoints, but because their viewpoints had consumed their ability to carry a normal conversation. He had to assume they were some of the most alienated people out there. The light turned green. Lucas left the man, silently wishing him well. He pulled into a Safeway grocery store to pick up a few things for dinner that night. He'd often shopped there, so he figured his was a familiar face to the staff. Still, that didn't fully explain what happened when Lucas was in the checkout line. Before the cashier started to go through the usual cashier routine, she stopped, looked Lucas deeply in the eyes, and asked, Are you all right? This was not the normal transactional conversation tone, but something entirely different. She sounded like she actually cared. Instead of responding with an automatic, I'm fine, thanks, Lucas considered his answer and finally said, I've been better. My life's pretty crazy right now. Of course it is, said the cashier. Everyone's taking all this really hard. Lucas didn't have to think long what this was. She was obviously referring to the 9-11 attacks, but that hadn't been what he'd meant. Still, he decided not to trouble her with even more of the world's problems, problems like supposedly religious people lacking compassion, or wealthy companies destroying beautiful landscapes so they could build another soulless shopping mall. No, people had enough on their plates right now without him adding to it, so he simply said, Well, you take care of yourself, okay? The cashier smiled and said she would. As he left the grocery store, Lucas thought about how perhaps 9-11 was going to be something of a terrible catalyst to bring people together, to open people's hearts to each other. Could that positive, unforeseen consequence be a small silver lining? If so, how long would it last? Would people continue to stay in a place of caring for each other? Or would they soon go back to their automatic, autonomous lifestyles, where daily interactions were distant, and few really cared about how small talk questions were asked and answered? That night, during the 20 chatty minutes before the meeting of activists became serious, Lucas asked Danielson in private, Why did you argue that Chris Lee should be punished? Because he should be, Danielson said, taking a sip of some ginger ale. He looked in his element in a cozy green sweater and tan khakis. Paul, you may still be too young to have learned that a person needs to look for compromises. The truth often lay in the gray middle. Lucas wasn't sure he agreed. But he respected Danielson, so he didn't reject it outright, as he might have with someone like Rialto. Instead, he grabbed some shrimp sushi off a platter and said, But Sam, if Weinberg rules to suspend him, the Schmitz and their irrational religion wins. Why are we so afraid to say bullshit when the truth is so obvious? Danielson chuckled. The truth is harder to pin down than you think, Paul. For instance, what would you say if Bob Jr. had taken the Advil and had a serious allergic reaction? Would that change your opinion about Chris Lee acting rightly? Well, that's different, Lucas said as he finished chewing his sushi. I mean, that's a health issue. It's real. This is religious hogwash. That's what we're dealing with. 
The point I'm making, Paul, is that we have the rule that students give their medications to the nurse for a reason. Because if a kid ever does have an allergic reaction in a situation like this, then we've got real trouble. Lucas laughed. To Chris Lee, this is real trouble. I didn't mean it that way. I know you didn't, Sam, he said, grabbing another piece of sushi and tossing it into his mouth. You make a good point. I guess I'm just getting bent out of shape at the way things are going lately. Understood, Paul, Danielson said. And I don't want to lessen your passion or concern. With that said, I think we'd better start the meeting. The two men walked into Danielson's large living room, which had a high angled ceiling, a beautiful brick fireplace on one wall, a corner of windows looking out into the forest, and a hardwood floor that gave the room a cabin-like feeling. A large oak bookcase covered the third wall. Lucas noticed several shelves devoted to titles such as Hiking in Mount Rainier National Park and Backpacking One Step at a Time. Several people sat on various couches and chairs, chatting amicably, but stopped to notice as Danielson and Lucas walked in. Rialto smiled at them both from a comfortable beige couch, and Lucas did his best to smile back. Gang, glad to see you're all here, Danielson said, and the few remaining conversations quieted. As you all know, this may be our last meeting with regard to Last Rush, so we've got to really brainstorm tonight and see if maybe we can come up with something that will help that decision turn back to our favor. First, though, I want to introduce two newcomers, Paul and Terry Lucas. Lucas and Terry smiled as the group acknowledged them. Lucas couldn't tell if the group was happy to have them, or if they felt like it was pointless to have two join so late. Better late than never, Danielson said. We can use all the brain power we can get in this. It's going to take some real creative thinking to get this thing reversed from going the way it's going. Okay, he clapped his hands together. Anybody have any bright ideas? Silence. It was almost a sad silence. Not the sort of silence that suggests that everyone is bursting with something to say, but no one has the courage to go first. No, this silence conveyed the impression that this group had run out of ideas, or maybe had lost their will to say much of anything at all. Lucas observed this and felt like jumping in with some questions to maybe get things going a bit. How could a group go from being so chatty to so quiet so quickly? What we need, Danielson said is another issue to put on the mind of the hearing examiner. We've already thrown the idea of endangered species at him, and even though we've got scientists who are on the record stating that there are juvenile salmon in Salisbury Creek, he's buying the argument from the developer-scientist that there aren't any fish. So we've lost him on that one, and I don't think he'd go for any new argument on that issue. Here Lucas just about spoke up. What about Sylvanus? If ever there was an endangered species, a man who was stuck in the side of a tree was it. He couldn't tell the group, though. For one, he didn't want to reverse on Terry like that in front of everybody. She likely would explode about it. And second, he didn't want his first words to these people to sound so crazy. They'd never take him seriously if he'd said that. So he kept quiet, and a woman with a loose maroon dress and long blonde hair said, I still think the volcano threat is our best avenue of defense. I mean, we've got the team of volcanologists on record stating that Last Rush is definitely one of the highly threatened canyons for a massive mud flow should Rainier act up. You mean a lahar, said Rialto proudly. Lahar bizarre, the woman said sharply, and Lucas could tell that she didn't get along with Rialto. It's our best bet. 
Even the developers might rethink it if they are offered enough proof that building there will only mean their mall will get buried sometime in the future. Yeah, Danielson said. Problem is, they aren't going to believe that. They are deep in denial because they so badly want to build this thing. So I think we can forget about that. I still think the best route is the publicly beneficial argument, Rialto said. From the case law I've read about how that phrase has been interpreted elsewhere, a mall has to be shot down three times and accepted only once. The consensus suggests that the phrase meant something less commercial, like a park, not a mall. Well, yes, I suppose we could try to stir the public up by planting some stories in the press so the hearing examiner may feel pressure to go our way on this, Danielson said. It does seem to be our best shot. Terry and Paul, do you have any ideas? Not right now, Lucas said, but I'm going to talk to a friend of mine tomorrow, and I just might. Chapter 16. Half-Truths, Denials, and Warning Signs before he'd even made the comment at the meeting, Lucas knew he was going to have some explaining to do to Terry. They hadn't even reached their car when she asked him, Who is his friend you have to talk to? Larry, Lucas said immediately, getting into the car. He knew she wasn't ready for this, but also figured she didn't know the extent to which he had planned out the following conversation. Larry said something to me about being on a volcano kick. He was going up to Rainier, which I thought was kind of strange since the mountain is sleeping. Anyway, he may be able to help. Uh, I don't know. But Paul, Terry said, you heard what Sam said. The volcano angle is kaput. It's not going to change anyone's mind. That's only the volcano angle that this group has already worked out, Lucas said, as he pulled out into the street. They've never met anybody like Larry. Even you have to admit, the guy has odd powers. Odd powers, Terry said and laughed. Yes, I suppose you could call them that. Larry Sherry, man of odd powers. Lucas laughed, and the subject was dropped. It had gone perfectly. Yes, he was going to talk to Larry about the volcano and its threat to Last Rush Canyon, so he could comfort himself with this partial truth. Of course, he'd meant Sylvanus, and of course he was hoping to play the endangered species angle, not the volcano bit. He'd wanted to give the sad activists something to feel hopeful about, even if it was something as crazy as a man stuck in a tree. Lucas knew that the sheer craziness of it was precisely what could stop the whole thing from going through, and he wanted desperately to be the last second hero to ride the shoulders of victory. Paul, Terry said from out of the silence, what are we going to do if we lose the forest and gain them all? I don't even want to think about it, Terry, Lucas said, and he turned on the radio and lost his thoughts in sports talk radio banter the rest of the way home. The next morning, Lucas was in the hallway at school when Danielson pulled him into his classroom and said, You don't know about Weinberg's involvement, do you? What? You don't. Fine, Danielson said, and he shut the door. It's his family. Brother, actually. He's the minority owner on this outlet mall deal. Something like 21%. And there's a few others around the area that have some, too. Of course, then there's J.R. Schneider out of Houston, who has 48%. Anyway, so you've never heard of Carl Weinberg? Well, yeah, Lucas said. I do read the paper, Sam. He's the real estate guy. But what's that got to do with Max? Do you have any siblings, Paul? Yes, a brother I hardly ever talk to. Well, not all families are the same, and the Weinbergs are certainly different. You don't hear much about it around school because you know how our principal is about gossip. 
But the Weinbergs have been around these parts for a long time, and they have not always been the most ethical of families, to put it nicely. What do you mean? Well, said Danison, pushing his glasses back up on his large nose, I guess I can give you a short history lesson. Way back, 1860s or so, Hermann von Weinberg. Von Weinberg? Yeah, they took out the von to Americanize themselves. Very common in those days, Danielson said. Anyway, Hermann was sheriff here when the Europeans were first settling in the area. Hermann earned the scorn of all the local tribes because he was such a brutal bastard. In fact, before he became sheriff, he was just about killed in an Indian raid on a cabin where he was staying. Apparently, he'd murdered an Indian family in cold blood while they were sleeping, and the Indians weren't too happy about that, so they came back for vengeance. Herman had a gun, and the Indians didn't, so he killed four more of them, purely in self-defense, of course. Still, the fact that he'd started the whole thing by killing an Indian family was never proved, or at least it was denied, by the whites who liked Herman's vivacious character and decided to make him share for it. Then there was his son, Wilhelm, or Will as he was called later. He was a real smooth talker when he wasn't drunk. He ran the town salon in the 1890s, bought a bunch of land locally, and when the 1920s came around, he was the top dog bootlegger for Pierce County. He was also suspected in some questionable murder cases, but never spent any time in prison. Then again, his daddy was still sheriff at the time, so you connect the dots. This is all fascinating, Sam, Lucas said, looking at the clock and realizing he had only 15 minutes until class. But what does it have to do with Max? Everything, Danielson said. Apparently you didn't grow up in a family with a capital F. No, not really, Lucas said, hesitating to go into his upbringing. Well, I guess you could say the Weinbergs are sort of our Kennedys. They aren't national, but around here they are big enough. And the fact that they stand the gain from this mall means that, A, barring a miracle, it's going to go through, and B, you and I have to be very careful, especially at school. Thanks, Lucas said. I had no clue. But I do think I might have that miracle. I'll let you know tomorrow. At lunch that day, Lucas got to thinking, How much can I trust Danielson? I've worked with Weinberg for four years, and he's always seemed like a good enough guy to me. A bit boring, yes, but not some power-mad member of a Kennedy-esque dynasty. He was gulping down a glass of milk when Wendy sat down next to him. The room was filled with the din of private conversations, and Wendy asked Lucas quietly, Do you know about the teacher of the year award? What? Darn, Wendy said. I don't want to be the one to have to tell you this. Let it out, Wendy. Okay, she said inside. It was rigged. What? How? Well, let's just say that Danielson hasn't exactly been quiet about talking badly about Weinberg, and even if Weinberg can't prove it happened, he hates nothing more than to be talked about badly. Anyway, they were going to give the award to Danielson to show him gratitude for so many great years. Yeah, I thought they were, Lucas said, and I'm still a bit embarrassed it was me. Paul, Wendy said and smiled. No one thinks you didn't deserve it. You did. It's just that your glory got caught up in this little personal spat the two of them are going. Okay, thanks for telling me, Lucas said, though he certainly didn't want to hear such news. Wendy's news had put a hole in Lucas's float, yet it had strengthened his determination to win the battle to save Sylvanus in the forest. He raced home from school that afternoon, anxious to pitch his plan to Sylvanus, 
When he arrived in the grove, the sun had all but disappeared behind a wall of black clouds, and for the first time that fall, the grove felt chilly, damp, and not very inviting to Lucas. Fall was definitely in full swing, and in western Washington, that meant a sogginess that doesn't go away until late spring, if then. Lucas shivered as he yelled up to his sleeping, indented Sylvanus. Ever going to wake up, sleepyhead? The knock came to life, and Sylvanus blew on a large centipede that was on his head. Go away, you! The centipede fell to the ground, looked dead for a second, but then scampered off into the woods. Hi, Paul, Sylvanus said. What's going on? Listen, Lucas began. I have to tell you something. This forest is going to be destroyed for... What? How on earth can it be destroyed? They want to put an outlet mall in here. What's an outlet mall? Oh, boy, Lucas thought. It's a place where people buy things. Lots of things. Things they may not need, but feel they do. Why do they want to build them all here? Because, Lucas said, they claim that Lincolnton needs it. Anyway, Sylvanus, it's probably going to happen. Unless... Yes? Unless we can tell the world about you. You, Sylvanus, can save the forest. But you'll have to let me tell them. No, Sylvanus said curtly. Then he was silent. No? Just like that? No discussion? Don't you care about this forest? Weren't you telling me about talking with its creatures? What about them? That's not the point. It is! No, Paul, it isn't, Sylvanus said. The point is, the decision is not entirely up to me. It's... well, it's just not. What or who is the decision up to? Who would want the forest to be destroyed? No one, Sylvanus yelled, and the force of his voice surprised and silenced Lucas. He didn't say anything, but finally Sylvanus said, I'm sorry, Paul. I just don't think you thought this all the way through before asking me. I'm sorry, but the answer is no. And before Lucas could even say, think about it, Sylvanus's head morphed into the tree, leaving Lucas muttering, you always get the last word, don't you? Lucas hurried out of the rapidly darkening forest, the air chilling him. When he reached his back porch, darkness soaked up the air, and his porch lamp emanated a misty yellow-orange glow. Lucas shivered as he entered the sanctuary of his house. Smiling at Scarlet as she ran up to him and hugged his legs, he ran his fingers through her hair and said, Scarlet, Scarlet, how is my Scarlet the Starlet? He'd called her this ever since a night a few years back when he'd been tucking her in after a long day and had accidentally said, Good night, Starlet, and that had sent her into a giggle fit. When he later told her what a Starlet was, she reacted enthusiastically and the nickname stuck. Daddy, I don't want to go to that daycare anymore, she said. Why not, honey? he asked, suddenly remembering that he had neglected to call the daycare to chew them out about Scarlet's accident at the intersection. Oddly, just as he remembered the neglected call, the phone rang. I don't know, she said. I just don't like it anymore. Well, there's got to be some reason, Lucas said. What is it? Paul, came Terry's voice from the kitchen. The phone is for you. It's Larry. Scarlet took the opportunity to run down the hall, apparently wanting any excuse to avoid going into too much detail about why she hated the daycare. Lucas forgot about it again and picked up the receiver. Larry, my man, what's happening? Terry said you had something to ask me. I do, Lucas said. 
That's what she said, Larry said. Suddenly, he remembered how he told Terry that he was going to ask Larry about the volcano angle for saving Last Rush Canyon. Fortunately, Terry wasn't in the room with him, so he just had to hope she wasn't within hearing range and that his words wouldn't make her think he'd lied to her. Oh, oh, oh yes, Lucas continued. I haven't really talked to you about Last Rush Canyon, have I? Nopesters, Larry responded. Larry, this is really serious, Lucas said. All right, brother, Larry said. Go ahead. Last Rush Canyon is a pristine old-growth forest with a beautiful little creek at its bottom that sits behind my property, Lucas said. And apparently, some people think that this beautiful piece of untouched land would be better off if it were raised and turned into an outlet mall. Stop there, buddy, Larry said. I have heard about this. Read about it in the Post the other day. Well, don't trust everything they say, Lucas said. I'm involved with some activists, and they were telling me that the Post has written several pieces on the controversy. Usually, it's a shallow assessment of the issues with more attention being paid to the gamesmanship of the lawyers than anything else, and certainly no mention of the inherent value of such a pristine area. In fact, they've written one editorial about how much the community stands to gain economically if they build them all, but nothing besides a few letters to the editor has suggested that the land is something beyond mere economic value. Oh boy, Larry said, exhaling a large breath. I knew I shouldn't have brought up the media with you, my friend. Just as passionate as a Spanish bullfighter you are. Well, Lucas said, I'm a bit despondent, Larry. We've only got a little more than a week before the county's land use office decides whether or not to grant the permit. If they do, we're through. Gotcha, Larry said. Well, what can I do? I'm wondering about the stability of Mount Rainier, Lucas said. You said something the other night about being up here on a project about it, Anne. Yes, yes, Larry said, excited now that it was his turn to talk. I just got back from my first trip up the mountain this afternoon, and there's a lot I'm learning. As you know, Mount Rainier is one of the largest volcanoes in the continental United States, if not the world. And while it erupts every now and then, eruption is not the threat that geologists fear the most from Rainier. Really? Lucas said. But wouldn't an eruption of Rainier be a serious threat to the whole Puget Sound region? Well, yeah, Larry said. But it doesn't erupt all that often, at least not that sort of an eruption. No, what worries geologists the most are lahars. There have been about 60 major lahars over the past 10,000 years, and the largest ones occur every 500 years or so. But if Rainier doesn't erupt all that often, Lucas asked, doesn't that mean these lahars aren't that big of a threat? That's what people used to think, Larry said. But recent research shows that lahars are not only triggered by eruptions on a volcano like Rainier. Sometimes they are triggered by parts of the mountain collapsing because it is mechanically weak. And, unfortunately for people in your town and other towns that sit on the western side of Rainier, four or five of the major river valleys where these lahars will come crashing through are on the west side. You guys are right in the line of fire. So why are you working on a story now? Lucas asked. Is there some warning signs that suggest one of these will occur soon? Well, that's just it, Larry said. They don't really give a warning sign, at least not like a volcanic eruption. So I'm working on this story so that people in towns like Lincolnton will understand the risks and become more active in supporting efforts to prepare for them. Wow, Lucas said. I wonder if you'd be willing to give a statement at the public meeting next week. Sure, Larry said. I'd be glad to. I'm going back up to the mountain this weekend. What day is the meeting? Monday night, Lucas said. 
I'll be there, Larry said. Hey, I gotta go. Got some things to do to get ready to leave in the morning. I'll be back in Monday afternoon, my friend. Don't worry, we're gonna help you defeat this thing.